Okay, thank you. Well, for real now, uh, good morning, and uh, welcome to the Longtimers panel, The Joy of Living, Let Go and Let God work, Workshop. My name's Peter, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and your moderator. Hi, everyone. For this meeting, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or electronic devices be turned off now. We remind you that this session is being taped. All speakers must sign the release form. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. The format for this session is as follows. We will have three speakers who will share for 18 minutes each, followed by three-minute open pitches until the end of the session. The topic for this session is Longtimers Panel, The Joy of Living, Letting Go, and Letting God. Just testing out the, uh, the alarm for the uh, speakers. Um, the following is a reading from the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous, pages 20 to 21. At one time or another, since we joined OA, most of us have experienced a period of complete freedom from the obsession with food and the compulsion to overeat. For many of us, this freedom came when we took step three and turned the entire problem over to our higher power. Suddenly, we no longer thought much about food and eating. When mealtime came, we ate moderately, felt satisfied, and stopped eating. It was as if some miracle had given us a healthy attitude about food and eating. For most of us, however, this reprieve didn't last forever. Gradually, food regained its dominance in our thoughts. Eventually, the day came when we wanted food, again wanted food we didn't need, and staying away from eating compulsively became more difficult for us. Does this mean that we, didn't re- that we really hadn't taken step three at all? Sometimes that was the case, but usually it simply meant that the OA honeymoon was over. What we needed now was a way of being abstinent over the long haul and living sanely through good times and bad. We have three speakers, um, so our first speaker will be Laney, and our first speaker will be Laney. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Lainey. I'm a compulsive eater. Hi, Lainey. Hi, I am a long-timer, not an old-timer. <laughs> I came in these rooms. Let me get this a little closer. How's that? I came in these rooms in 1989. I was 20 years old, and I was tipping the scales at almost 220 pounds. Closer to the mic? You can't hear me. Ooh. How's that? Better? Okay, good. I, um, I'll just repeat that. I came in the rooms in 1989. I was 20 years old. I was tipping the scales at 220 pounds, around 220. So just um, to give you a visual, because I'm standing behind this podium. I'll let you look at me. <laughs> I don't have any fear of standing up here and having people look at me. I don't have any fear of standing in front of a group of people that don't know me and letting them look at my body. And that is a gift of this program, uh, by all means, because that girl that came in this room, she couldn't have done that. 
Um, I'll give you a little history of mine. Um, I was a fat child, pretty much around the age of maybe eight or nine. I started to gain weight. Um, I was in a family of tall, beautiful people, so I stuck out a lot. I literally had an older sister who people used to confuse with a really famous actress at the time, so it was uh, quite a shock. Um, Sometimes... You know, I lived the usual um, childhood of the 70s and early 80s of ridicule and stigmas and all the things that, you know, a child could go through in terms of uh, being a, a person that walks around where you can see their pain. Um, I came in the rooms, um, 89, my younger sister was getting married, and we went to um, get fitted for the bridesmaids' dresses, and I didn't fit the largest size they had. Yeah. It was, to my little 20-year-old brain, it was just devastating. And I had had a friend that I had gone to high school with, and she um, had, this change had happened to her. Um, And she had lost weight, and anybody that lost weight, I was interested in. Any time I saw anybody have a tiny change in their weight, going down. I wanted to know what they were doing. But I was, my disease is very clever. It wouldn't ask specifically. So I waited. And, but more importantly, she changed uh, on the inside. Uh, Her whole, as they say, attitude and outlook was completely transformed. And uh, I was interested. And one day she just turned to me and asked me if, um, I wanted to go to a 12-step meeting with her. I didn't know what that was. I'd never heard of that. Uh, we really didn't have much alcoholism in my family. I grew up in a very religious household. Um, so they, didn't, they were all pretty much what we would consider dry drunks, basically. Um, and so I went. And uh, it was... Uh, everybody was uh, literally had blue hair. And then there was me. And then there was my friend. Um, They were all retired. They all talked about their grandkids. Their lives were their own. They were in charge of the food that they chose. That was not my reality. I was still living at home. I was pretty much treated like a child. I had no control over the food that was brought in or how it was cooked. So um, I had quite a challenge. I was basically going to grow up in these rooms and experience all the things that they had already experienced. Um, now you see mostly people, my, the age I am now, come in the rooms. But back then, everybody was about 65, I think. Um, it's much different now. Uh, so I went to the meeting and um, talked about the wedding dress that I needed to get into, the bridesmaid's dress. And everybody smiled. And um, I went back out, and I binged. And I really binged. And um, I remember, um, you know, without getting into too much detail, I am such a low-bottom eater. I mean, I can, without this program, I can eat myself to death really quickly, like literally eat myself to death. And I was eating things that are questionable whether they were actually food. Um, uh, Things that you find in the back of the freezer that everybody forgot about. Um, that's kind of garbage I would eat uh, because my mom wouldn't know that I ate them. And um, I I just remember crying 
And I don't know if they still have this uh, thing, but um, it was the frozen variety, and they had three colors. I haven't eaten it in so long, I don't even know if they have it still. It was those three colors, and there was the one color was pink. Nobody liked that. It was literally chewy. And I ate it, and I couldn't stop eating it. And after I had been to the meeting and I had that sensation that there was a hope, um, I just I burst into tears. And I was literally, like, crying. And I tried to throw it away. And, I, you know, I did what my disease decided I could do, which was fold it and shove it under. And then I pulled it back out later. And that was the end of it. And uh, that night... I went to another meeting. Uh, That was a week later. And I went to the meeting, and I was so ashamed. Here I was. At that time, I was literally the only person probably under 60 in the room. And I just, this woman walked in. who She was my age now. And she walked in, and she sat down, and she looked totally normal to me. Uh, She looked like a healthy, attractive, uh, proportionate human being, uh, I couldn't understand what she was doing there, um, but you know I didn't know what else to do with myself. I was, um, it was it was death was coming. I mean, basically, if I had continued like that, I would not make it to the age I'm at now. And I remember she opened her mouth and she said, "I'm so angry." She shook her hands. I just ate food out of the garbage, and I tried to ruin it, and I couldn't. And I'm coming here to feel better and ask my higher power. And it was a miracle because I had just done that. I had just done that. And that experience opened a window or a door or a portal or something that said I didn't have to live in the secret. Everybody knew my secret. I carried around 100 extra pounds. I didn't know they knew that. In my fantasy bubble... People didn't know my pain, and this woman shared this. And I poured myself into this program. I mean, I did everything you told me to do. If you told me that being recovered and having a relationship with a higher power meant jumping down the street backwards on one foot, I did it. I worked those steps. I made amends for things. I don't even know if it was my fault. I didn't care. Um, I said, you know, I was wrong. What do I need to do to change it? And I just kept working the program. And then the fitting came. And I forgot about it. And my thank you. My sister reminded me. I went to the fitting. And not only did I fit in the largest size, I had gone a size down. I I didn't even care. I was literally just like they say, come for the vanity, stay for the sanity. I hate idioms, but that one works in that moment. Um, I could have cared less about that dress. Ironically, my two sisters, my two older sisters, had gained weight. And they didn't fit into the dress. And I didn't understand what was going to happen. And I remember the seamstress says, oh, well, we can put panels in. I go, there's panels? (laughs) But it was too late. Um, I was hooked on being healthy. And um, so I knew something bigger than me uh, communicated to me at that point that 
my program was not going to be perfect, that I was going to have a lot of the first-time experiences that a lot of people had already had, and it was going to be rough, and that I needed to settle in, Um, and that my bottom-line abstinence was going to be never to leave the program, and I've never left. I can't even imagine. I'm standing up here thinking about the math of the thousands of meetings I am going to be going to in my lifetime, you know? I mean, people in my family live to be like 90, so that's hundreds of thousands of hours I'm going to spend in these rooms from 20 years old to 90 probably. Um, But it hasn't been perfect. I've had two uh, relapses. One I had in 19... um, It started around 1998, and um, I... I went back up. It took me until 2007, 2005, to put back 75 pounds, which is 25 less than the 100 I came in with. And then I had another relapse about a year and a half ago, and I put back somewhere between 35 to 40, which means it was half. So quite possibly, if I have the misfortune of having another relapse, maybe it'll be... I mean, that's the gift of coming here, uh, never leaving. I, um, I cannot not recognize that I am highly addicted to sugar and binge eating, but um, it's never been as bad as it was when I came in here. Not ever. Um, so I, uh, you know, I do what we all do. I go to meetings... I work with other addicts. I try to be as transparent as possible about all areas of my life and all my secrets that I try to keep, especially with what I put in my mouth and what I do to my body. Uh, I try to abstain from sugar uh, one day at a time. And um, I, I can stand here and say I have had sugar a few times in those 25 years, but I've lived a full life without sugar for the most part. And uh, the, the notion that my life is smaller or that I don't get to do anything or, you know, I don't get, I've been all over the world and I haven't had any sugar. So I'm, when people say that to me, I don't want to do that because I, I want to have a full life. And to me, it just sounds preposterous. Cause I've been everywhere and done everything with no sugar. Um, let's see, I'll, I'll catch you up. Um, yeah, I... Um, in this moment today, uh, I am obsession-free. I am free of obsession of food and my body. And my, um, my focus is um, not on how other people treat me, but how I treat myself and how I treat others. And that is a miracle because that 220-pound fat girl was a throwaway person. She was someone that everybody gave up on. I was never going to change. I was always going to be that size or get worse. Um, That's what I was told. And this friend of mine uh, proved all those things wrong. And I'm, you wouldn't even, well, physically you wouldn't recognize me. But also um, my personality you wouldn't recognize. I've done some things that people are not supposed to do that have grape eating disorders like mine. Things like t- 
taught in extreme sport professionally for 15 years. I work in the movie business. Five, I don't have my glasses on. Can you put that back up? Anybody? Five, okay, thank you. You're sweet. <laughs> um, dated models. Uh, I've been around the world a couple times. Been on uh, exotic beaches in a bathing suit. Me, who up until I was about 22 years old, uh, never wore a bathing suit that didn't have a shirt, long shirt over it in public. Um, it's just uh, unbelievable. I, uh, there's things I do now that I couldn't even imagine doing uh, in my early 20s or teen years that I don't even think about, like putting on a pair of jeans. I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was about 21 years old, uh, a teenager without a pair of jeans. So, um, yeah, I'm here. I come. Um, some of you know me. Uh, I don't stop coming, relapsing, not relapsing, eating sugar, not eating sugar. I talk about it because for some reason if I talk about it and I turn it over and I write about these steps and as a new brokenness shows itself, I lean on a higher power and I work with others. The desire to damage my body with excess food is arrested for one day. And I have no idea why it works. But I come, and you've all heard me, some of you from Los Angeles have heard me come in and say, I'm in relapse. And I'm here. Because um, I know this program works. Because I am a living miracle. I am a living miracle. I, I believe that I would not be alive without this program. I would not. I would have eaten myself to death. So, ironically, um, <clears throat> all those beautiful siblings I have, uh, I'm not the fat one, right? I'm not the fat one anymore. Um, they all have type 2 diabetes. They all have type 2 diabetes. Um, my, dad's from, uh, my dad's parents are from Mexico, which Chicanos have a preponderance for heart disease uh, in America. Men and women, it's totally de- democratized. It doesn't matter. It doesn't care which gender you are. Um, he's from nine. Uh, they've all had open-heart surgery. They all compare their scars. That's what they do when they see each other. They talk about their open heart surgeries. That is their reality and their diabetes and how they. It's like it's like a shot is like magic to them. Um, I am the only person over forty in my family that doesn't have diabetes or any kind of adult onset heart disease, and you cannot tell me it's not because of this program, because everyone has it. So I should have it as well, right? It's literally this 12-step lifestyle that I've dedicated my life to. It's saving me. Um, I I don't know why I was saved, uh, but I keep coming back. Um, I keep working the steps. I work them very diligently. Um, You know, I... It hasn't been perfect at all. I still get challenged a lot every day. I still have contend with having a human body and all that comes with it, um, which can, you know, be rough at times. Um, I still, 25 years later, I still default to that fat girl in here. I still think like her. I still try to live 
like her, which one minute, awesome, sometimes is so painful because it feels like I'm literally ignoring all the work I've done and all the gifts I've been given. But one day at a time, she's in there. She sometimes makes the decisions. But I can come in here and talk about it. And it doesn't matter if you're 80 or 17. We all, it, it, it all ends the same way, right? In complete demoralization and unmanageability. So here I am. Um, I'm never going anywhere. This is the lifestyle I chose to live. It's a very humbling disease, but it's better than that other way, which was no life at all. And um, thank you for letting me share. Okay, our second speaker is Michelle G. Hello. Hi, can, can you see me? <laughs> I'm wearing stilts and you still can't see me. I am very excited to be here. Can you hear me? I am very excited to be here. I am nervous as hell, just so you know. And it was funny because I, I think the topic is um, the joy of living and let go, let God. And I tell you, the joy of living this year was, number one, I qualified for the senior discount at Coco's. <laughs> Yay. And the old geezers panel at the Region 2 convention. I mean, long-timers panel. But anyways, I always thought of us as the old geezers. So I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, I want to apologize in advance for my transgressions. The longer I've been in program, the more I've learned. Like when I first came into program, it was, you know, I did something wrong, and then I had to think about it and call my sponsor about it and obsess about it and then make an amends after about a month. Now I think about it, I make the amends, and then I do the thing. So this is what I'm going to do. I apologize for in advance because I talk about food. I apologize if I offend anyone. I talk about what I ate and even sometimes where I got it. And also I apologize because I am not Region 2 conference approved. The way I work my program, and I've worked my program the last 34 years, is really weird, like steps out of order and stuff, so we'll get to that. Okay, so I apologize in advance for offending everybody. Um, I came into this program 34 years ago. Actually, I'll just back up really quick. I came to my first meeting when I was 18 years old. A friend said, there's this meeting. We're going to lose weight. I went. And obviously, you know, I heard some really interesting things because it stuck. But what happened was somebody was talking about their higher power, and their higher power happened to be Jesus, just their higher power. Nice Jewish girl. I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, my father's going to kill me. I'm going to come back baptized. It's going to be like, this is really, really bad. So at the break, I left, but the seeds were planted. That was eight, when I was 18, and I came back when I was 21. And I've been in program 34 years. I've been abstaining in program 32 years by the grace of God. Um, when I came into the program, young, too. I mean, like, everyone was you know, what I have underneath the color, um, gray. And, um, and it was an interesting thing. I, I was a raging compulsive overeater. I was not a binger. I was a grazer. 
And I could tell you stories. I've told my home group stories. I mean, this is, I'll tell you my little story. So my, because, because this has to do with the men's. No one knew why Michelle was heavy. And I was only, I was heavy, not really fat, because I was living at home still. And my father was a narcissist and only wanted, like, thin people around him. So he watched what I ate so much. So I just, he controlled my food. I didn't. So I'm still at home. And what I do is I have to, I have to get my fix. I got to get my ice cream out of the freezer. My parents are watching TV and the kitchen is around there. And so I walk in, and I've, I've perfected the fine art of turning on the faucet and opening up the freezer at the same time to get my freezer item out, and then I eat it, and then I go in my brother's bathroom, which is in the service porch off the kitchen, and I flush the wrapper, right? My little brother, he's six years younger than me. I flush the wrapper. Well, what happens? My brother uses that bathroom, and after time, the toilet starts clogging, right? And the toilet clogs and the toilet clogs, and after all, my, my brother stops going to the bathroom. And we're talking. He ends up in therapy, you know, Jewish people, going to the bathroom is a big deal. I mean, you're in the bathroom more than five minutes, someone's standing there. Are you okay? So, so um, my brother's clogging the toilet. He had to go to therapy. So when I came into program, the reason for the story, and when I had to tell my parents I was in recovery in this program, I had to make an amends to my brother and my family about that freaking clogged toilet that I was flushing wrappers down, and no one knew why Michelle was so chubby. So, you know, I'm not going to talk much about what it was like because the truth is you've done it or you're currently doing it. So I don't need to explain all that stuff. I'm going to tell you more about what happened and what I'm like. Um, The bottom line is, you know, I mean, I figured out over the years that I ate to fill up the big black empty hole in my soul that was supposed to be filled up with love, self-esteem, self-acceptance. I mean, that's the bottom line. There was a big hole and I was filling it up with food because I wasn't getting any of the stuff I needed. Um, I was able to maintain a slightly chubby weight, and um, I have no doubt in my mind I would have been a 100-pounder if I hadn't come in when I was 21 years old because I could not diet. One diet, my dad put me on Schick. I went to Schick, for, lost 15 pounds, gained it back in like two minutes. And that was the only diet I ever went on. So I went away to college, and then I was not under the watchful eyes of my father, and the weight came on. The weight came on in 20 pounds and 30 pounds and 40 pounds, and I'm freaking out. So my bottom was that when I hit my bottom, I was in college, and I needed my fix because I was really stressed out because I was studying for finals, and I needed my, um, my brownie cake delight from um, 31 Flavors. And it is... Um, I lived on Reseda Boulevard, and there were three 31 flavors within a five-mile radius, but I really needed to keep that weight down for my father, so I rode my bike to one, I roller skated to the other, and I jogged to the other in one night, and I thought, I am one sick mother. <laughs> um, and the next day, I went to the Darby Annex. You know, this was before internet. I must have called the white pages or looked in the white pages. Anyway, so I went to my first meeting, and then I struggled for two years. I would get a day. I would get two days, two weeks, two months. I mean, I'm back and forth, and I'm not eating, and I'm eating, and I'm struggling, and I'm a piece of shit, and I'm eating, and I'm not eating, and I'm struggling, and I'm a piece of shit. That's sort of how it goes. And then what happened to change me is that, hi, two things, actually. Number one, I went to a retreat. Now, you would think it was the pearls of wisdom that came out of these old-timers' mouths, and oh, my God. You know what it was? I had never eaten with another abstaining compulsive overeater. I had never taken a meal. I had never gone to fellowship. So I'm at this retreat, and it's breakfast time, and I'm sitting down with these pinnacles of OA society, and they're having, you know, a couple of eggs 
eggs, a piece of bacon, some orange juice. I mean, what is wasted calories but orange juice? I mean, really, I would never in a million years drink orange juice. And so I'm watching these people, and I'm realizing, oh, my God, abstinence is not a diet. I really thought everyone was eating four ounces of protein, a fruit, and a vegetable at every meal. That is what I thought they were doing to abstain. So that was huge, going to that retreat. And take, if you haven't taken fellowship with other OAs that are in recovery, do it, because it's really eye-opening, because we're weird. Um, weird about our food, and waitresses hate us. Um, the second thing that I did is I got a sponsor, because, you know, I tried for two years to do it by myself, because I'm an intelligent, college-educated woman. You know, give me a book. I can figure it out. You know, there's instructions. There's 12 steps. So um, I got a sponsor, Ginny. Her name was Ginny. I feel like she like was this angel with lights, like God lights on her. Um, anyway, um, and what she had me do, it was so freaking simple. She said, okay, Michelle, honey, I want you to make two lists. The first list, I want you to write everything that when you eat it, you feel uncomfortable. Cake, cookies, candies, blah, blah. You know, when I eat it, I feel uncomfortable. Chicken was not on the list. Broccoli wasn't on the list. You know, the things that when I eat them, I, it, I'm uncomfortable. And then she says, I want you to make a list of all the behaviors that when you do them, you feel uncomfortable. Eating seconds at meals, eating off other people's plates, um, uh, eating frozen food before they defrost. I mean, you know, the, the, and she says, okay, sweetie pie, that's your abstinence. Because I was a grazer. She, would, she said, you eat three meals a day with nothing in between. Don't eat anything on that list. Don't do any of those behaviors. That is your abstinence. Okay. So that was very interesting. You roll out of bed onto your knees. Jews don't pray on our knees. I was willing to go to any lengths. I am out of bed on my knees. Say the first three steps, and God, please do for me what I cannot do for myself. That was what she said to do. So I tell you... The first six months, I went to Jack in the Box every day for lunch. I had a fried chicken sandwich, french fries, and a chocolate shake. I do not know how come chocolate shake did not make it on the list, but somehow it didn't. <laughs> and for every day for six months, this woman told me that I was abstaining, and it started feeling good. I was a success. I was doing this. And one day after six months, I walked into Jack in the Box, and I thought, maybe I'll have a Diet Coke instead of a chocolate shake, because I could have a chocolate shake tomorrow. And that was it. That was it. And I, you know, and I have been abstaining ever, ever since. I have to tell you, there are certain things I haven't had. I have not had a donut in 32 years. have not had a donut. That was my big binge food, because, you know, I'm at work. I'm just one, just a half, just a half, just a half. I haven't had a donut. My abstinence over the last 34 years has gone up and down and here and there and all over the place. I do it with the help of a sponsor. I have had no sugar. I have had three meals a day with nothing in between. I was pregnant, two abstinent pregnancies. I had to eat six times a day. I went through, I mean, I have done everything. No sugar, sugar. I went for about a 15, 20-year period where I had three meals a day with a golden spoon yogurt. That was my goodie for 15, 20 years, until my stomach couldn't take one more bite of aphidophilus or whatever, acidophilus. And I couldn't put another thing in, but it worked for me. It kept me abstinent. I am not OA approved. I am not OA approved. I believe it is not about the food. I believe it's about the feelings. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, and, then, and then I'm going to tell you what I think is different between OA 
and any other diet plan. Well, it is. It's the steps, and it's God. But I just want to tell you, I'm driving. My family says, you know, we're having Dairy Queen tonight. Okay, I'm driving a Dairy Queen. I'll get my Dairy Queen. We're going, I mean, this is just my truth. I'm sorry. I'm like, this is so sacrilegious. So I'm driving there for the family. My mother calls me on the phone. Now, mind you, she's 80 years old, widow with cancer. How much fun was that conversation? So I'm talking to my mom on my Bluetooth, and I'm, we're dri- I'm driving to Dairy Queen. And by the time I got there, I couldn't have one because I was so upset about the conversation. I knew if I ate... Now it wasn't that I was just eating because I was eating and it was part of life. Now I was eating over my feelings. Same freaking food. And I had to text someone and I had to call someone and I had to say, I can't have it now because I'm upset and I don't eat when I'm upset. It's all about my fit spiritual condition. The way I work the steps is very, very different. I I started, well, it's not different. It's just evolved. You know, I went in order in the beginning because I was told to work it in order. Now what I do for myself, I've just started doing with my sponsees, and it seems to be working really, really well. I'll tell you what I do. I wake up in the morning, one, two, three, right? One, two, three. And I have another program, so I also I, I admit that I am powerless over everything except my own thoughts and actions, and my life has become unmanageable. That's my second first step. And then I pop on over to step 11, where I'm going to do prayer and meditation, right? Because, you know, one, two, three. Because I've already done my fourth, I gave it away. Now I'm in 11, doing prayer and meditation. Then I go to 12, I'm sharing the message. The thing is, I'm doing this with my sponsees. Imagine this. I bring on somebody new. I say, okay, grab the workbook. We're going to start working one, two, three, four, all the way. What I see is that people come in, and it takes three, four years to get to the fourth step, or through the fourth step. Well, what about the beauty of 10, 11, and 12? So we pop on over to step 11, pray and meditate. Give them a tape, do whatever, pray, meditate. Then we're in, uh, that's 11. Then we go over to 12. We're in the middle of a spiritual awakening. We're sharing this message because we're going to meetings, sharing recovery. And we're practicing these principles in all of our affairs. Now, I didn't even know what the hell the principles were. Until I was in the program for 20-something years, and I have my little book that has all my, like, things. I highly recommend a book with, like, all the cool things you, you get over the years. Go to page, let's see, go to October 19 in the Voices of Recovery. That is conference approved. And the, it lists the principles of OA. Honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, blah, 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 love, spiritual, service, trust, open-mindedness. Go to that play page. So I have my people in, they're in step 12. They're practicing these principles in all their affairs. I have five minutes. I have to talk fast. Then we pop on down to step 10. Now, step 10, if you look in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's actually on that page, page 86 into action, there's 10 questions. So I actually typed it up for them because I'm so, like, you know. So the 10 question, it says right out of the book, when I retire at night, I constructively review my day. Was I resentful? Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Was I afraid? Was I, do I owe an apology? Why the heck can't a newcomer be asking these questions? Because when they say to me, I don't know what a character defect, when they're in step four, and I say, Write your 10th step for about two weeks. And they're writing, I was a bitch to my husband. I was a bitch to my husband. I was a bitch to my husband. You're, you're a bitch. That's one of your character defects. You know, so that when they're doing their fourth step, they get it. They get it. So, so we pop down to 10. And then when we do a boo-boo, we go, okay, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We say, what did I do wrong? Why did I do it? What do I need to fix? And who do I need to apologize to? And so that's our, and then we're working through the, you know, the, the workbook while we're doing all this. So totally not conference approved. I'm a step hopper. Okay. So the two things, again, that are different than diets are the steps and God. God. I love God. God loves me. 
I could talk to him all day. I could listen to him all day. I love it. The gift of this program, about nine months ago, a woman came up to me and asked me to be her sponsor, and she is an agnostic. Oh, my God, we have had so much fun. I have had to rewrite the steps for her. She she turns her will and her life over to the care of her higher self. And we've come to believe that her higher self, you know, there's her base self and her higher self. We all know that it's God, but we do the higher self, right? I mean, it is so, and then the other one is, um, um, oh, she seeks through quiet contemplation instead of seeking through prayer and meditation <laughs> to improve her conscious contact with her higher self. So the, the fun thing is, this has given me an opportunity after all these years to learn something new in this program. And for that, I mean, there's so, so many ways to, to learn and to grow. Um, I am just so blessed. I mean, this, this talk is supposed to be about the joy of living, and I am right in the middle of a really big, really wonderful life. Um, so I want to leave you with one of my favorite excerpts, and this is from There is a Solution in the Big Book, page 25, in the third edition, which is the one I still work out of, which is really old. And I change us to, to my, because it's personal to me. In the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, The central fact of my life today is the absolute certainty that my Creator has entered into my heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. God has commenced to accomplish those things for me which I could never do by myself. Thank you very much for letting me share. And now, now we'll hear from our third speaker, um, Ali. Good morning, God. Good God morning. It's all in the attitude. Which one is it? Good morning, God. Or good God morning. It's all in the attitude. I, uh, you all remember this? My name is Ali, and I am a compulsive overreader. It says here, Saturday speaker dinner, $45. And then in parentheses, almost in desperation, it says, choose only one. Grilled chicken breast, grilled filet of sole, grilled marinated vegetables. I am glad that that was pointed out to me <laughs> by my wife. Because as a compulsive overeater, it made perfect sense to remind me that I can only choose one. I am in the right place, right? Choose only one. In my house, my wife says, the chips are stale. I can't eat it. 
My daughter says the cookies are stale. I can't eat it. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> stale? You mean you actually taste? <laughs> there is no stopping in my palate. It goes mouth to esophagus. There is no taste. It's an amazing thing. You know, this is not, this is not a self-help program. In the big book, it says, it says uh, selfishness and self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles. It's not a self-help program. It is a self-forgetting program. I, God willing, will have 29 years in August. 29 years on August 26, 1984, 4.30 p.m., and I maintain a 120-pound weight loss. I want to give uh, homage to my first sponsor, Crazy Alex, who took me through the first uh, six to eight months. Crazy Alex told me to call him every day at 6.30 in the morning and give him my food. Seven months later, he said... You wake me up every morning at 6.30, stop calling me. And I said, but Alex, you told me to. He said, I know. I thought you were a loser and you would never call. (laughs) He didn't understand the depth of people-pleasing to which I could uh, aspire. And, and now my sponsor of 28 and a half years, Bob Bell, has taken me across that span of time. And Bob has been the father I wished I had. Gentle, kind, and someone who can, like this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, give me a blueprint for living life. I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't know my thinking was distorted. I didn't know there were solutions to life other than what my brain told me. And my problems in my life had always been my solutions. I was, some years ago, I'm retired now, but was a vice president of the college. And the president called the vice presidents together and said, uh, I want you to identify a set of solutions for this problem that we're having. And I want you to report back to me tomorrow. So the four vice presidents got together and we mapped it out and planned it out and organized it out and had solution sets and contingency plans, and she called the next morning and pulled us all together, and we gave her all that 
nicely worked out solution set. And she thought about it and she said something that has been extraordinarily useful to me. She said, thank you. I have decided we don't have a problem. No. I thought to myself, really? You can decide that you don't have a problem? What a unique thought. She's not even a 12-step program. And over the years, it has been very helpful to me to remember I don't have a problem. In 29 years, there has never been a situation or a problem that my higher power has not resolved in a way that exceeded my own limited imagination. Never. I have what I call a distortion amplification manufacturing machine, <laughs> which I call my brain. Distortion amplification. It is a system of thought that seeks out problems to solve, yours and mine. And it amplifies it. And then it has a distribution center. And it's this program that is a perspective amplification manufacturing system. It, it, it's about perspective. Right? And so when the president said, I have decided we don't have a problem, the problem went away. Is that an amazing thing? The problem went away. We do not have a problem. I want to uh, pay homage to my mother, who passed away April 16th, 12.27 a.m. in my house after living with us for a year and a half, year and seven months, in hospice where we took care of her. I saw her take her last two breaths at 12.27 a.m. And my sponsor said, it'll be peaceful. It'll be gentle. Hold her hand, tell her you love her. And that's how it was. Now, those, you, how long is one and a seven, one year and seven months? Is that like 19 months? Those 19 months, she moved in as a woman who was at the center of my disease. 
and she passed as my hero. It was the hardest, I would say probably, other than the despair, pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization of compulsive overreading. It was one of the most difficult experiences, and that is where I had my spiritual awakening. My sponsor and I have talked about the difference between spiritual experiences and a spiritual uh, awakening. And I remember sharing with him, I don't think I've had a spiritual awakening. I know I've had spiritual experiences, but I'm not sure I had an awakening. Um, I had the awakening on, in that last month and beyond. It was difficult because I had to run to my higher power hour after hour after hour. When you stare at your disease sitting across the table for a year and for 19 months, it is a very difficult road. And the resentments, the anger, the judgment, um, it's all there. And it pushed me to go to Al-Anon. I'm in three 12-step programs, uh, AA, and, and in the last year and, I guess, uh, almost, almost two years, year and a half, in Al-Anon. Because I had to learn the process of forgiving. I had to learn to love. I had to learn um, to be free of the resentments and the judgment. And so my higher power would continuously give me these experiences where I had, sometimes in despair, to learn to love. And uh, there were times when I thought it was futile because I couldn't get forgiveness. There were times in my prayer and meditation I would say to God, show me what forgiveness would look like, sound like, and feel like if I had it even one time. One interaction, one moment. What would forgiveness look like? And it was then that I began to have the this the sense of what a forgiveness would sound like, look like, and feel like. I couldn't do it for a day, right? One day at a time. I couldn't do it. I had to have an example. And... Uh, Six hours before she passed, I sat next to her, and I'd done this many times, put my arms around her. Um, She was in extreme agitation. Those of you who have gone through that experience, you know that when that extreme agitation begins, um, it's a sign. And I said, uh, 
And I thanked her because I, it was because of her that I was redirected back to school, college. I, I was a community college dropout, which is pretty amazing because today I stand before you with a doctorate and completed coursework towards a second doctorate. And, and it's an amazing thing. I was a taxi driver in New York hanging out with mafioso guys at Palacios Pizza gambling. And it was her, she was the one who redirected my life. And I thanked her and I said, I am happy that I wouldn't trade my life for anyone else's. And in that weak, weak voice, she whispered, I love you so much. Isn't that what a parent wants to hear? I'm happy. Thank you. She became my hero. I never had heroes that were personal. I always had distant heroes. John F. Kennedy, Muhammad Ali, you know, heroes that were abstract and conceptual and sort of far away. I would have never in my wildest dream picked my mother or my father. She became my hero. And I saw in her resilience uh, a spirituality and love and uh, realized that those were gifts she gave to me. Right? Because why would, why would we not be here if we weren't resilient? Right? The desire to live, hope. Right? Hope. And so, uh, one of the things my sponsor has me do, and I have for 20 some uh, 25 years, is worked uh, cards that he has developed called the 12 Aspects of Love Patience, Tolerance, Kindness. These come into the big book. If you look under big book, for example, uh, to, the fa- to, the, to the family, there's a paragraph that says, patience, tolerance, kindliness. It was written in 1930-something, I guess. Kindliness, trust, sincerity, humility, courtesy, right? joyfulness. And I had to practice these cards Constantly. I do it, I did it with my mother, I do it with my wife, I do it today. I'm practicing trust with myself, with others, and with God in my behavior, in my feelings, in my thinking. I accept life as it is given to me without fear. The one corroding thread, right? The big book talks about without fear, knowing all is well and in perfect harmony, right? And it was through practicing the 12 aspects of love that my mother became my hero. And this program gave that to me. And... uh, And for that, I'm very grateful. 
There are no problems. The universe is a solution-finding machine. My job is to stay out of my own way. There were times when I wanted to get rid of my mother and call my sister in Missouri and say, Step up. Your turn. My sponsor reminded me, the 11th step, which becomes problematic if you haven't done the 7th and 8th step and the 6th and 7th step, because you can justify self-will, run riot, says, make the request and ask God to give you the answer in some future date. So I made the request that I am going to call my sister and say, you need to take mother. And I'm going crazy. And I said, God, I'm going to know what your solution for this problem is a month from now. Because the distortion, amplification, manufacturing, distribution machine sees everything as catastrophe to be solved. And a month later, the problem went away. Right? There are no problems today for me. Thank you. Thank you. The meeting is now open for questions from the floor for the panelists. Um, please sign the re- oh okay. Um, please sign the release form at the podium prior to speaking. We ask that panelists limit your share to three minutes and confine your share to your experience, strength, and hope on the topic discussed today. So, questions from the floor for the panelists. Let's start with you. This question is for Michelle. What do you do specifically each day for your recovery? Well, that's easy. I get up, I do one, stay, say steps one, two, and three. Then I go into prayer and meditation. I have a lot of trouble doing quiet meditation, so I listen to CDs or tapes, sometimes even opera, because they're talking to me in Italian. I don't know what they're saying, but they're saying something other than what my mind is saying. Um, so I listen to some kind of CD. I, I read, I don't know, four, five, six of the daily meditations, whatever I have. Um, talk to sponsees. Um, let's see. At the end of the day, I do my 10-step. Um, then I make my amends, you know, 10. Then I run through 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Um, go to, I personally, I go to one meeting a week, and I go to one spiritual practice meeting a week. And I try and live a big life. I have a husband, and I have a kid, and I work. I have kids, and I work, and uh, OA just allows me to do that. And I do none of it consistently, (laughs) none of it perfectly. And I forgive myself for that as well. Okay. Does someone else have a question for one or all of the panelists? 
Yes. Is it? So let me repeat the question. Is it for any of the panelists? Okay. So I guess the question is, when there are no problems and I manufacture problems, how do I live when things are just going along fine? Is that? Which one of you would like to take that? Hi, I'm Lainey. I'm a compulsive eater. Um, I am a perfectionist, and part of my perfectionism, there's a, a aspect of it that's people-pleasing, and I like to control how people perceive me and how they feel about me. And I'm not an introvert. I'm an extrovert. So instead of getting, like, the passive feigned innocence, I take action. And sometimes I take action without thought. And... Um, I heard this saying in a meeting in a different program the other day, don't just do something, stand there. And I have to tell myself that almost every day because I am, I feel in my mind I'm literally allergic to uncomfortable feelings. And one of the ways that, I'm, that I numb out, that I mask those uncomfortable feelings is with food. I will completely check out of life with excess food and certain types of food and certain types of behavior around food and my body. Um, so one of the gifts from this program is consistency. And my goal is peace. Uh, my weight and other things are not necessarily my uh, goal. It's peace. And um, sitting in uncomfortable feelings is horrifying. But I do it one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time. So um, I recognize my behaviors. I write them down, right? So I have clarity on them. Here's a trigger, there's a trigger, right? They're everywhere. Uh, I make a lot of outreach calls. I can literally start to feel when that part of me, that diseased part of me, does not want to feel the feeling of not doing anything. Where's the drama? Where's the fire? Where's something I can do to fix it so you like me more because I'm a fat person and you will reject me for no reason. That's what it was like in it as a child, right? They would pull out that card no matter what, right? And I still live there. So, you know, one day at a time, I work with other addicts. I'm reminded of what I do. I get as much clarity as I can. But, I mean, this is not a popular answer, but my answer is sometimes I just sit with the uncomfortable feelings that I get to do nothing but stand there. So, thank you. So, um, 
So this is an opportunity to dig into the big book, right? Because uh, the big book uh, says, on awakening, we think about the 24 hours ahead. I learned recently that on awakening is not just in the morning. That I could be resentful, angry, pissed off, and the world is coming to an end at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I can have an awakening. On awakening, which is the 11th step. And the 11th step doesn't make sense without the third step. Right? So, on awakening, conscious contact with God, right? On awakening. Now, the big book says, as we go through this day, we pause when agitated or doubtful. As is the most important word there for me. Not as, but as. Each second is an as. As we go through this day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. As. And we ask. The big book keeps saying you have to ask. If you don't ask, your higher power can't activate. You have to ask. Ask equals willingness, surrender, right? I can't do it. I'm powerless, right? As we go through this day, we pause. Pause is an 11th step. when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action, we constantly remind ourselves that we're no longer running the show. Then later on it says, we usually conclude the period of meditation, which is the awakening, which is the pause. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer, with a prayer that we be, what? Shown all through this day, and then here comes the next important word, what our next step is to be. That's it. The next step is to be. We realize, And what our next step is to be. The next step isn't to figure it out. Right? The next step, the next step as could be Folding the laundry, right? Washing a dish, picking up my daughter, paying a bill, putting a stamp on the bill, on the, on the envelope, things I couldn't do before, right? And something happens when we take action. And so that's how I got through and get through periods when I'm most agitated and crazy. And the tools of the program. First things first. Let go, let God. How important is it? When I'm most agitated and my mind is obsessing compulsively, I go back to the program and the acceptance prayer, right, from the big book. So that's how I get through it, because that is the blueprint. Without the blueprint, I don't know that I, 
that I have solutions. I don't. I get into scenario planning, into the future, and I have conversations with people who have not yet met, and they are pissing me off because they're not responding. I used to sit in the living room and interview myself about grand geopolitical realities, and the throngs would listen, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I don't have a blueprint. This gives me the blueprint, and I get sanity when I do that. Sometimes I don't until I have an awakening. And I have a lot of these awakenings. Thanks. Yes. Uh, we have short one. question was asking about spiritual meeting, asking her to define exactly what that was. Okay, and um, maybe one more. Got two minutes. Hmm. Yes. So the question is, what are your favorite tools and how do they bring joy to your life? So lightning round answers. <laughs> um, mine is the plan of eating. It starts on the plate and it works out. So I have to start every day with the plan of eating. Otherwise, I might as well not even get out of bed. My favorite tool? What do you think? Um, sponsorship. meetings. Okay. Thank you. That is all the time we have for sharing. It's now time to close this session. Let's thank our speakers who have done service for this session. If you enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tapes table to order copies of this session or any other sessions. All workshops and main speaker events are being recorded on, and are available in CD or as an electronic downhold, download. Uh, please join hands as we close with the OA promise. That's one that starts, I put my hand in yours. So 